Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. to do the introduction when every time I do it you're not happy with it I'm pretty happy with that one that was a real winner well you didn't even finish saying the word hello My you know name. what I think you know what I think we should do what we should say g'day no g'day. I, am, I welcome to murder I fucking of refuse I refuse I'm gonna say g'day every episode now oh my name's Jess today I'm Ellen <laughs> <laughs> oh I'm violently ill now and we're here to talk to you, part two of the backpack murder. Backpacker murder, murders. murders. Backpack murders. Backpacker. He didn't murder backpacks. <laughs> I know. I realize that's what I just said. Um, if you sense any strain between me and Jess tonight, it's because I said that nobody cares about Cabaret. <laughs> and Cabaret is one of the best fucking musicals of all time. You know what's better? Burlesque. You know what? You know what? Christina Aguilera, she's got lungs of a mutant, but man, she cannot fucking act. I thought she was to good. save her life. I thought she was really good. The hairstyles impeccable. Those Christian Louboutin fancy shoes that that guy from Grey's Anatomy gives her, amazing. Oh my god, I forgot about that part. Yeah, really but then good. she's like, "Can I get a shot of Patron?" And you're like, "Um, it's like you've I don't never know, can you?" I was like, "It's like you've never ordered a drink from a bar." In your fucking life. To be fair to Christina Aguilera, I don't know how much experience she would have at ordering Patron. She doesn't seem like a Patron girl. Maybe if she was like, can I get a glass of Cristal? She would have said it better. Yeah, whatever. Oh, Fifi's sniffing my toes. Oh, this is getting real weird real quick. Um, So we've got part two of the (laughs) backpacker murders. It got a bit real last time. It got real last time. We're going to try and keep it lighter and breezy this time. Not... Not like too light because again it's murder, but also we got sad. Yeah, we're gonna yeah, be I, less sad. I got a bit teary. Sometimes I'm worried Fifi that I'm a sociopath. Fifi was um, she was a bit worried. Fifi hid the entire time, but now she's sitting here, so maybe she's like, "Alrighty, you guys like kind of freaked me out, but I'm back on board." Yeah, cute. Alrighty, shall we get into it? All right, I'm hold on. I'm gonna have a sip of Coke, no sugar. My new drink of choice. Thank you, Zane. Everybody's just waiting with bated breath for you to go. finish that Coke No Sugar. <laughs> Alrighty, Backpacker Murders Part 2. Ivan Robert Marco Malat was born on the 27th of December 1944 in Guildford, New South Wales. This is the second New South Wales this time, not the OG. He was the fifth child of Margaret and Stephen Malat. Stephen was a Yugoslavian immigrant, dock worker and real mean guy. Margaret was an Aussie girl, 18 years younger than Stephen. 
They Yikes. married on the 11th of November, 1936. Margaret was 16 and Stephen was 34. Oh, my fucking God. You can't begin good at that point. No. You just no. can't. Um, so the Malats had 14 children. Jesus Christ. Olga, Alexander, Boris, Mary, Ivan, Shirley, William, Michael, Walter, George, Margaret, Richard, David, and Paul. Could you imagine no. pushing out... 14 children. I don't even know if I want to push out one, I'm, let alone 13 others. Jesus yeah, I don't Christ, know. your insides. They just wouldn't, they would just disintegrate by that point. They'd be walking on out by the 13th. <laughs> <laughs> They'd just stroll out ready-made. Oh, oh yuck. Okay, so um. the Malats um, jumped all over Sydney in various living situations. Um, Stephen worked on the docks for a while. Then he had a market garden in his yard and he did various other labouring jobs throughout his life. Um, he and Margaret had an amicable, loving relationship up until around child number eight. Stephen had been hitting the drink more. Margaret and he argued a lot and he began to hit her. Um, Stephen had like famously good work ethic. Like he would get up in the morning at 4am, walk something fucked like 25 kilometers to work, work all day and then walk back and get home at like midnight. Like he would just go. He just had something in him that it was like, you know what I'm going to do? Neglect my wife and children and work all the time. Um, but everybody was like, well, this guy's got good work ethic. And he passed that on to his children when he had that, um, market garden in his yard, all the kids would work in it like from like sunrise till sunset basically um but then the market garden failed because some yobbos like <laughs> that word yobbos what <laughs> it just makes me laugh it's a funny word um Yobbo. some delinquents like ruined <laughs> ruined his tomato crop and so basically when the kids didn't have the garden to work in anymore they just like ran wild so Ivan and his siblings, mostly the brothers, were getting into big amounts of trouble at a very young age. Um, the Malat boys would roam the streets at night gang style, throwing stones at houses and running away. Um, Ivan, <laughs> you know, like they'd come out and be like, who's throwing stones at my house? And they'd run away. That's not funny. <laughs> How big were the stones? I, You know what, <laughs> Jess? I didn't actually ring up Ivan Malat in prison, spoiler alert, he goes to prison, <laughs> and be like, hey, buddy, uh, nice work on the backpack and murders, just reviewing it for a podcast. Only what How he did, big are the but... stones? How big were the stones that you threw at houses when you were a child, Ivan? <laughs> Sorry. They were stone-sized. <laughs> That's so relative. He didn't, like, they weren't, like, boulders. They weren't, like, lobbing boulders through windows. They were just, like, <laughs> stones that they found on the ground and stuff, I guess. I don't know. Maybe they did lob boulders. Hey, okay, I'm, I'm starting to sound like an idiot now, so move on, move on. Starting? I'm out. Bye. <laughs> See ya. Don't say that you don't like cabaret in front of Jess. <laughs> You're going to come back there, right? I've got a lot. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, podcasts to, to go. Oh, no, Jess is actually mad. I'm just going to keep going and hope she comes back. Um, so <laughs> Ivan uh, wagged school like mad. Um, Ivan's mother caught him wagging one day and brought him back to school. He left school again and was back home before she was. The solution for his parents was to send him to Boys Town. Um, if you're from Australia, you'll recognize the name Boys Town from like the lottery prize homes that they put in your mailbox. Um but you might not know that Boystown was implicated into the Royal Commission for Child Sexual Abuse. 
Um, I just want to note so we don't get sued for defamation in like the modern days. Boys Town is owned by different people. But back in the day when Ivan Milat was getting sent to Boys Town, um, it was owned by the church and bad things were going down. Jess is back now. Thank God I was flailing. Um, <laughs> so I don't have any um, evidence to say that Ivan Milat was abused at Boys Town, but I just thought I would say he wasn't going to like a fun home where they like you know canoed and learned life skills it was like a church run delinquent school um so he went to boys town for a little while um and then he eventually left school around age 14 he worked a few odd jobs at a concreting works and building chicken cages um at the chicken cage job Ivan nicked a bit of money from his employer and an antique shotgun he sawed off the barrel of the shotgun and showed it off to his brother Boris, who then threw it into a creek. On your Boris. On your Boris. He was like, someone ain't right about this boy. Nah. <laughs> um, Ivan continued to get into trouble in his later teens. He got a job working for a man named Peter Cantarella who owned a fruit shop. Ivan stacked boxes and various other lifty movie kind of jobs. Um, Cantarella liked Ivan's work ethic, which all the Malats had. He told Ivan if he ever needed anything that he was to come to Peter. Ivan said, all right, and asked Peter to go as guarantor for a car loan. When Peter signed it, Ivan stopped coming to work. <laughs> How's that work? <laughs> <laughs> what a fucking chump. <laughs> what a fucking chump. <laughs> Laugh or you start crying. Yeah, you know? Literally, literally. Okay. Um, so after that, Peter also started to notice that little things were going missing from his house, including guns and expensive jewelry. <laughs> he knew who the prime suspect was. Um, Peter told his brother in law to threaten Ivan to get the guns back, which Ivan then did, minus a pistol. Peter had um, report, reported the guns as stolen to the police, and when he got them back, he didn't let the police know because he, like, threatened Ivan, so he didn't want the cops to come onto him. So the cops were still going at the Malats. So they were coming around to the Malats' place being like, oi, where are the guns? And the Malats were like, uh, we're the Malats. We don't <laughs> want the police to come knocking. So to kind of get back at um, Cantarella, Ivan's like, alrighty, I've got to, you know, exact my revenge. So he runs Carmel Cantarella off the road. One day when she's come back from work, he slashed the tires on Peter's car and cut the brake light cables, threw stones at his house, threatened to kill him, you know, the usual. Peter retaliated back. Um, he one night like rolled up on some of the Malat boys when they were out and bashed one of them who he thought was Ivan, but was actually the younger brother, Billy. Oh, poor Billy. He's copped a lot of shit, you know? This is the first time I've brought him up. <laughs> I'm sure he did, but <laughs> I'm just saying he's copped a lot of shit. If he looked like Ivan. Yeah, they all looked freakishly similar. Um, the Malat boys weren't going to let some guy bash their innocent younger brother, so they rallied, heading to Cantarella's place with an arsenal of weapons. But he wasn't there, so they threatened a few employees and waited around for him to arrive. But Cantarella saw them like waiting out the front of the place and was like, I'm going to I'm going to nope out of this right yeah. now. Cantarella ended up paying for Billy's medical costs and 140 pounds compo and the feud ended. Also, this was at a time when Australia still had pounds. Long time ago. Long time ago. Um, so, yes, I'm telling this kind of long-winded story to kind of illustrate what I, young Ivan Milat was like. Yeah, so he was like a hard-working kind of guy um, up until he got his car loan apparently. Um he, people did like him when they first met him. Like they thought he was a good bloke. He was 16 at this point in time, but like they thought he was a good guy. 
Um, but he was pretty quick to anger and he liked, he liked a weapon. He liked some violence. Um, but the family unit was very strong. Like if you mess with one Malat, you mess with us all basically. And there's a ton of us. So like in numbers, they're going to get you no matter what. Um, okay. So I'm not going to outline every instance of uh, petty crime that Ivan Malat did in his youth. Um, he did have a bit of a reputation for like bashing people when he didn't get his way. He was a big fan of weaponry, um, but stealing was his real like game. Um, he was arrested for burglary and appeared at children's court in 1962. They gave him bond, which he broke and he was hauled up again for break and enter two months later. They sent him to Mount Penang juvenile detention center for six months. And when he was out, he was back cruising the streets with his brothers, doing more B and E's of houses and shops and whatever else. Um, one night out, Ivan and Boris, uh, who was one of his brothers, are driving around and Boris um, breaks down near a closed servo. Ivan says, wait here, goes inside the servo, steals a battery, um, but an alarm goes off and the police come down. Ivan like runs away. Boris is sitting there in the car being like, honest officer, I don't know what's going on. And the police are like, so you broke down outside this servo because your batteries run flat. Somebody has broken into the servo and stolen a battery and you don't know what's going on. And Boris is like, yeah, you got that right. I don't know what's going <laughs> Yeah. Can't explain that. Um, but Ivan's legged it. Um, Boris ends up getting in trouble with the police. Um, but they never find out that Ivan was the person that stole it. Um, I think. Until now. Until oh, we're outing him. <laughs> no, just kidding. Uh, they knew. <laughs> they actually added that to his list. of. They were like, oh, and remember that battery you stole when you were a teenager? We're putting that on the list too. Um, Ivan, uh, also did a series of robberies at an army camp, stealing money from the safe. He was arrested for those and did 27 months in minimum security. Um, as soon as he was out, he was in trouble again, this time for stealing a car with his brother, Billy. He was back in the slammer for two years. He violated his parole from that offense by stealing a car with his other brother, Mick, and got three years with a non-parole period of 18 months. This was in 1967. So he's in and out of jail. He spends, he spends quite a large chunk of his like early years in and out of institutions like Boys Town, then Mount Penang, then Real Jail, then Real Jail, then Real Jail. Um, so I'm going to fast forward a little bit to 1971. Because like the space between 67 and when the backpacker murders happened, that's like 20. Yeah, it's like 20 years. Jesus Christ. So 1971, um, Ivan's been out of prison for a bit. He's working, um, works for Main Roads. His life is going all right. So these two girls, Greta and Margaret, are hitching a ride down to Melbourne. Um, the girls know each other because they both had just done a stint in a psych hospital. Um, they caught a train to Liverpool and started to walk up the Hume Highway when a car pulled up next to them and the driver offered them a lift. Um, they're kind of like chatting with the driver. I don't know. It's not that notable. They just had normal conversations. They didn't really think that anything was sus until a few hours into the drive when the car goes off-road driving down a gravel track and stops Driver says to the girls, basically, I'm going to have sex with both of you. The girls say, uh, no, thank you, sir. And essentially like a standoff occurs where he's like, well, I'm going to do this to you whether you like it or not. And the girls are like, um, we are patients from the psych hospital. We cannot be engaging in this right now. Like this is, this is not going to happen essentially. Um, so Greta's in the front seat, Margaret's in the back. Greta is trying to reason with the guy and just being like, look, this is like, this is not going to go down. You can drop us off here, whatever, but this is not going to happen. Um, he, the driver brings out some rope. Margaret from the back says, all righty, here we go. Tie us up, leave us here, drive off. 
so you can get away and, you know, by the time we untie ourselves, you'll be gone and we won't call the police. So the driver ties them up, but he doesn't leave them alone. He threatens to kill them and Margaret then basically says, alrighty, if you have sex with me, will you let us go? And he says, sure. Um, It lasted for two minutes, she said. Um, Afterwards, he drives them to the nearest town and the girls immediately make contact with the police. Um, The police caught up with him. Um, Ivan Malat, big surprise, Ivan Malat was the driver of the car, um, was actually charged with rape. He was put on trial for the crime, but he was actually found not guilty. So the trial happened quite a few years after the incident. Um, as I said, Margaret had been in the psych hospital at the time. She was kind of having like sexual identity issues, I guess, which like they sent you to the psych for when you were in 1971. Um, but when the trial came about, she had been undergoing therapy with this therapist who was trying to like get her to like take responsible for responsibility for her like sexual actions, I guess you would say. So she said at the trial, like, oh no, like I agreed to have sex with him basically like you know he didn't force me into it I said that this is what's gonna happen so he was acquitted (sighs) yeah rough rough as hell um so yes so he didn't go to prison for that unfortunately um but it does illustrate that as early as 1971 like 20 odd years before the backpacker murders he's picking up hitchhikers from the same place like Liverpool near the Hume Highway and taking them off to gravel roads and insert activity here. Um, so the girls actually asked them, asked Ivan Milat when they were in the car, they said, like, have you done this before? Have you, like, you know, raped anybody before? And he said, yeah, and I always come prepared. So whether or not that's his first incident, I, don't, I obviously don't know if he was telling the girls the truth or not, but, you know, that's what he said allegedly. Um, so we see like an escalation of crimes here. We're, so we're starting off with like, you know, wagging school and little things like that to like, you know, property damage, breaking and entering, stealing cars, then going pretty quickly to like kidnap, kidnap and, rape. and rape. Yeah, by, by the time you get to 1971. Um, so I'm going to skip ahead again a little bit um, or skim over a little some facts of Ivan's life. Um, he went to jail again after the rape for an unrelated reason. Um, he got married. He was a stepfather to a kid for a little while. He moved around New South Wales a bit. Um, he worked as a truck driver for a real long time, which he really loved. Um, but then he quit that job and kept working at um, the Department of Main Roads again. He was a hard worker, as everybody said, like worked so hard. Uh, he wasn't much of a drinker. He said that he didn't like how aggro he got when he drunk. So he kind of stayed away from the stuff a little bit. Um, so... Ivan's relationship with Karen, his wife, started off really good and everybody thought that she'd like chilled him out. Like, you know, he was a violent kind of guy and he was interested in violent kind of things, but his family and everything was like, oh, Karen and Ivan are a really good match. They really suit each other. Um, But their relationship deteriorated pretty significantly over time. Um, They got together in the mid-70s. They were married in 1983. But Ivan, kind of similar to his dad, I guess, started getting more abusive and controlling as time went on. Um, So his dad died in 1983 and this is about a time where people started noticing a change in Ivan. Um, Karen thought he was more aggressive um, with a shorter fuse. His obsession with guns steady throughout his life grew considerably. He kept a loaded gun on him at all times. Um, He kept knives too, like big, like, that's not a knife this is a knife kind of knives um 
He had worked in at Main Roads for a while, but people kind of thought he was a bit of a mystery. Like he would nick off periods of time and then come back and like not really be like, sorry, lads, I was just doing this thing to do with my job. Like he'd just go and then come back and keep working or whatever. Um, and he was also nicking rolls of sash cord. They were like, yeah, he really liked to steal rope from work. <laughs> he was just crazy for stealing just rope. crazy for rope. Um, but they were like, yeah, it was real weird because he didn't really have any reason for rope because he didn't have like a boat or anything like that. Oh, um, Jesus Christ. He spent a lot of time up at his brother Wally's property on Wombie and Caves Road shooting kangaroos and feral cats and stuff like that. Um, he was very overprotective of Karen and didn't let her talk to anybody, even the neighbours, although she did manage to become friends with a few people when he wasn't there. He was off quite a bit for work. Like he did travel around quite a bit around New South Wales for work, like building roads and stuff. Um, one night in 1987, when a while, while away on a job, he called Karen like he did every night to check up on her and she didn't answer. Furious, he called a neighbour and the neighbour said that she'd taken off. He set fire to her parents' car a year later in retaliation. So we've reached the late 1980s. Ivan Milat spilled it up with his wife. He's really bitter about it. He quit his job at Main Road so they wouldn't take part of his salary to pay for a maintenance. So like like alimony or whatever, he quit his job so they, he didn't have to give her any money. And then he started working um, somewhere else and used a fake name. Um, he's got a long criminal record. He loves guns. He's picking up hitchhikers from the Hume Highway. Um, it took a little while for his name to come up in the investigation of the backpacker murders. Um the police weren't like sitting around waiting until Ivan Milat fell into his lap. Part of the problem with the initial investigation into the backpacker murders was that there were too too much tips, too much information mm. was coming in and they didn't have a way to synthesize it all or understand it all. Like the computer infrastructure was just not there to kind of bring all these tips and everything that they were getting from the public and put it all together. I was about to spoil something, but I'll keep quiet. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> See, we made up. We're yeah. friends again. <laughs> um, yeah, so every man and his dog was like, I have a really sus uncle. I reckon he's the backpacker murderer. So like, Daryl. Remember Daryl about the Betty Shanks murder? Yeah, it's classic Daryl. Classic Daryl. Classic Daryl. Um. Yeah, and they had so many, like, lines of inquiry to go through. Like, they had cars, guns, everything like that. Every single person that bought, like, a Ruger 1022 that they could find. Like, they went to, like, different gun shops throughout New South Wales to try and get information. They actually went to the gun shop that Ivan had purchased a bunch of his guns from. And the guy knew Ivan Millat, but Ivan put, like, a fake name next to the registry, like, when he bought it. Also, at this point in Australian history, he you didn't have to keep records of who was buying guns. So it was just like, oh, yeah, um, it's Daryl or whatever, and they never – so they would have read, you know, Ivan Milat's handwriting saying, I purchased a gun here, but they just didn't know that it was actually Ivan Milat. Um, So, yeah, the the best tip that they had was about the Ruger 1022 and the bullets. Um, Some other tips the police received was the testimony from Paul Onions about his escape on the Hume Highway from Bill. It didn't get lost. They had it, but because of all of the information, like it wasn't lost, but nobody was really like, oh, yeah, this sounds like the guy. Yeah. Until later. Um, They also had a tip from Joanne Berry, who was the um, motorist who picked up Paul Onions. Paul Onions. I never call him Paul in this entire writing. You just like, call him I just call him, I call him Paul Onions every time. You've got a full. He's got one of those names that you just have to full yeah. name. It's a magnificent 
gorgeous name. Such a good name. Paul I want to be Mrs. Onions. I know, Jess. <laughs> Jess loves the onions. Mrs. Onions. Um, the police actually had quite a few tips about the Malats. Firstly, they had on file Alex Malat's um, witness statement about the people in the cars. Um, secondly, they had a random tip from a woman whose boyfriend had worked with a gun nut who had a property down at Belangolo, whose name was Ivan Malat. And they also had a mention from some co-workers of Richard Malat, who the co-workers knew by an alias Paul Miller. So Paul Miller, in sarcastic quotation marks, had made some disturbing comments about knowing who had killed the missing Germans at work. He'd also said that stabbing a woman was like cutting a loaf of bread. (laughs) And these two co-workers were like, one of them to the other was like, hey man, that poor guy said some very weird shit. And the other guy was like, I've been thinking the same thing. It's very suspicious. Um, They also knew that Paul was a gun nut and was like, kind of crazy they also knew that he and his brothers all kind of lived around Belangolo way so Walter lived at Hilltop which is about 30 minutes away from Belangolo and Alex at Buxton 40 minutes away from Belangolo so we've got three different Malats with three different tips in the kind of I want to say the cloud the cloud didn't exist the ether ether of the information that the police had so the Malat file ends up with one officer on the task force named Paul Gordon He's reading the info and he thinks Richard Malat is pretty good for the murders. So he re-interviews the guys that called in the tip initially to get a bit more information um, and kind of, you know, investigates around and sees what he can hear about them. And he keeps on hearing that Rich- Richard Malat. He found out that obviously Paul Miller is Richard Malat. He keeps on hearing like Richard Malat's a fucking psycho. Like he's a crazy guy. Like if anybody would do it, it would be a guy like him because he loves guns. He loves nights. He loves talking about it. Like he's just not okay. Um, but all he hears about Ivan Malat is that he's a really good guy and a hard worker and a devoted husband and what have you. Like nobody has a bad word to say about Ivan, but Richard, like people can't stop being like, yeah, he's definitely the killer. Um, so he's like, okay, Richard Malat's the guy. So he looks into the work records for his Richard and Ivan and Richard was working on the day that James and Deborah went missing. And then he looks into Ivan's records and Ivan was off every single day that one of the backpackers went missing. So he's like, oh. acts like a dog, looks like a dog, smells like a dog. It's a dog. Right. Ivan did it. Yep. <laughs> so Paul Gordon had a really good feeling about the Malats, but he felt like the higher ups weren't appreciative. Um, Clive Small, the leader of the task force, would say, like, make sure you can 100% rule him out. If you can't 100% rule him out, then he's a good suspect. But then until then, no. Like you have to do your due diligence to get this person off the list before we can put him on, essentially. But that frustrated Paul Gordon because he was like, oh, he's the killer. He had every day off. Like it's too it's too much to be a coincidence. Um, so one day he's kind of uh, looking more into Ivan Milat, um, looking into his criminal record and stuff like that. And he sees um, that he was acquitted for a rape in Goulburn in 1971. So he goes again to Small and was like, this is the guy, like, come on. Like, he was off every day. He's got all these guns. He was charged with rape. Like, what more do you want? And Small says again, no, like, find out more about it before you arrest this guy for the crimes. From Small's point of view, he was like, we get one shot. Do not miss your chance to blow. Like, 
because opportunity comes in a once in a lifetime. I was like, that's a cool, that's from something. I was like, is it from Hamilton? No, it's no, not it's, from Hamilton. It's, it's from Eminem. Eminem. <laughs> Brilliant. Yes. But unknown to Paul Gordon at this time, Clive Small had a group of like brains trust, essentially, including Dr. Milton, who came up with the profile mm. um, that I spoke about in the first episode. Um, to basically be like a round table where they could come up with like not only like a profile of the killer, but also like a framework for questioning the people in the town and stuff like that. Kind of like what the professor does in Mindhunter, like where she wants mm. to come up with that list of questions where everything's And then they fuck around and they don't use it. Yeah, I'm on Jonathan Groff's side for that one. You can't just like read off a list. Anyway, that's a different they episode. They fucked it. Um, so... One of these guys was an anthropologist named Dr. Richard Basham from Sydney University. So they were sitting around basically like shooting the shit about case details. Um, Basham agreed with Milton that it was likely two killers, probably brothers. He thought that the killers were part of a family with a bunch of brothers who would have roamed the streets harassing people, hurting animals and shooting at targets. Clive Small basically was like, "Uh, you've just described the bloody molasses. Not really, but he was like, oh, we have a family you know, we have a group of individuals from a family that fit that description pretty perfectly. So Clive Small did think that the Malats were likely, he was just trying to, you know, do everything above board. He was that kind of guy. Um, So when Paul Gordon looked more closely into the details of the Goulburn rape, which was brought to him by his partner, David McCloskey, um, the facts about like the knife, the rope, where they were picked up and everything like that, he again went to Small and said, like, if you look at the details of this case, you know, the the rape case, it matches the backpack is perfectly. Like, I've done my due diligence. I've looked into it. It's this guy. Small's like, I'm picking up what you're putting down. And he put Gordon and McCloskey on a group that were investigating the Malats full time, basically. Mm. So at this point in time, the statement from Paul Onions about his escape in 1990 reaches Paul Gordon's desk. Um, so when he reads the part about the four-wheel drive with the sheepskin covers and the Merv Hughes moustache, it makes Paul Gordon think that Ivan Milat was the person who kidnapped Paul. Paul Onions. Onions. <laughs> he checked the work records. Richard Milat was working that day. Ivan Milat wasn't. And he also found out that Ivan was familiar with the Galston Gorge area where James Gibson's backpack was located as he'd done work there while working for Main Roads. And he'd gone on holiday leave on December 21st and James and Debbie disappeared on December 30th. Bum, bum, bum. Um, so at this point in time, Paul Gordon writes an application for small to put listening devices on the Malat phones. They put them in the headrests. Did they? No. Oh. <laughs> um, he had already, he'd applied for this once before and he was not back because the law says you can only use listening devices when all normal investigative procedures have been used and not worked out. Um, in the... Application, he mentioned that um, Onions had said that Bill had described himself as being of Yugoslavian descent, divorced, and that he'd worked for Main Roads, obviously all things that describe Ivan Malat. The vehicle Onions described matched the one that Ivan Malat drove that was actually registered to his brother William Malat. He also noted that Ivan had used the name Bill as an alias before and had even been registered to work under that name. So when he quit his job at Main Roads, he was pretending that he was Bill Malat, essentially, at his next place that he worked. But Small said no to this application again. He wasn't convinced that normal investigative procedures had been exhausted. 
So Gordon, chip on his shoulder, goes around and asks a bunch of Ivan's workmates, present and former, as well as Wally Malat's ex-wife about Ivan and tells him tells them all that he's part of a task force for the Belangelo murders. So these workmates are getting questioned by the police um, and then they go to Ivan and they're like, hey, Ivan, uh, just had a police officer ask me about you in relation to the backpacker murders. And Ivan's like, yeah, they're, they're looking into me like they, they reckon I'm a real tough guy basically, but he brushes it off. Um, he says like they've got nothing on him. There's nothing to link him to it, but he is actually quite spooked. So he gives a bunch of his guns to Wally to store up at the property just in case the police come knocking. Um, cars were placed around Ivan's workplace and near his house, but Ivan knew the police were surveying him. Um, apparently they like disguised vans as like, I don't know, Telstra vehicles or whatever. Um, and the neighbors were like, obviously it's not Telstra doing roadworks or fixing anything. It's obviously the police, but they thought they were investigating like a series of burglaries that had been in the neighborhood. No, no, sorry. You live near a serial killer. Um, the police called up Paul Onions and asked him to come to Australia in May 1994. Onions did, although he was a little annoyed because he gave a statement like ages ago at that point and was like, oh, okay, so now you want me to fly down to Australia now that you've gotten around to looking at it. Um, so two detectives and Onions drove along the route that he had taken with Bill and Onions described what had happened to him. The detectives then showed him a videotape with 13 photographs of men with mustaches and asked Onions to pick out who he thought the perpetrator was. Onions watched the video a couple of times, um, feeling the pressure very intensely to get it right, and he picked person number four, which was Ivan Millet. <laughs> I was about to say, if he picked person number four who was like old Joe from around the corner, I was like, I can't take it. I can't take it. <laughs> no, it was Ivan Millet. So now Small had something that definitively linked Millet to a crime, not necessarily the backpacker murders, but armed robbery and assault. So Small decided that they were going to arrest Ivan Millet. So they were going to go to his house. The plan was go to his house, arrest him, search the place while simultaneously searching Richard Walter and Bill Malat's residences as well as their mother's place. They were desperately hoping to find items connected to the backpacker murders at Ivan's place or one of the other locations. Um, if you remember, none of the backpackers' belongings were recovered with them apart from the odd headband and jewellery. Um, and they were backpackers, so they all had huge backpacks containing, like, everything that they ever owned. So, like, passports, cameras, clothing, everything was missing. So they were really, really hoping to find some stuff left from the backpackers at one of these locations. Surprise, they did. <laughs> Spoilers, they do. <laughs> so the day before the raid, two cops go up to Queensland where Alex Malat lives. Um, so the cops basically just say that they're there to ask Alex questions about the statement that he gave about the people in the cars. Um, but they're actually trying to like freak Alex out a little bit. So he calls Ivan. So they get some info because now finally they've bugged the phones two days before they're going to arrest the bloke. They've bugged the phone. So they want Alex to call Ivan and be like, mate, the cops are a knocking. So Ivan says like, oh shit, better hide the incriminating evidence or something like that over the phone. Mm. Um, so they ask Alex a few questions about bullets and about backpacks. Alex, Alex is like, yeah, I got tons of bullets. Um, so he shows them all the bullets that he has. He also shows them a blue backpack. The cops are like, mate, where'd you get this backpack? Alex is like, oh, my brother Ivan gave it to me. And the cops are like, oh, that's really interesting, buddy. <laughs> it's Simone Schmidl's backpack. So they ask Alex to give him some hair and saliva samples, which Alex does, uh, and then they leave the premises. I can only assume they, like, high-fived and were like, <laughs> we got him! <laughs> yeah! 
So, um, fully sick, mate. Fully sick, mate. Um, it's fully sick that we found this evidence in this location. So the task force now has evidence that he was at least somewhat involved in the backpacker murders. Now that's all the left to do is arrest him. So the raid team, codename Air One, sick, Air One, fully des- sick, mate. <laughs> fully sick, mate. <laughs> Descended on Ivan Malat's place at Eagle Vale at 6.30am on Sunday, the 22nd of May, 1994. The negotiator rang the house phone and asked for Mr. Ivan Malat. A male voice replied, he's not here at the moment. Obviously, the cops are like, okay, Ivan, (laughs) we're just surveying your entire house and have been for weeks. Sure, you're not there. Um, The negotiator's like, okay, we have the place surrounded um, and we have a warrant to search your property in relation to an armed robbery and that for your own safety, you should come outside and lay face down to the ground. Ivan Malat replied, and this is verbatim, righto, I'll just, uh, let me put my pants on. <laughs> oh, he would have no pants on, wouldn't he? He would. Fucking asshole. The cops waited and nobody came out of the house, so the negotiator calls again. Ivan's like, oh, I thought you were somebody from work. Pulling my leg. And the negotiator's like, no, this is literally the police. Come the fuck outside. <laughs> Ivan's trying to play. Ivan knows what the hell is going on. He's not stupid. He's just trying to give them the runaround to kind of extend the conversation out and play dumb mm. to come up with the plan or something like that, I guess. It's the Golden State Killer being like, oh, my roast is in the oven. Let me just go in. What? You know when they, when they arrested Joseph D'Angelo? D'Angelo? They were like, hey, come out with your hands. And he's like, oh, I've got a roast in the oven. Let me go and turn it off. And the police were like, no, you're obviously going to go inside and like get a weapon or kill yourself. Come out without checking the roast. I did not know that. Seriously? Nah. It's one of the like facts that people like to talk about of the case. Anyway, so he's just trying to stall the time basically. Um, The negotiator says, come out with your arms outstretched from your body. Ivan Malat says, oh, I'll have no shirt on. The negotiator says, well, if you just walk down the street with your pants on and no shirt, that's fine. <laughs> Ivan Malat says, okay, well, me and my girlfriend will come out together. Also, he's a girlfriend at this point. I didn't bring her up. Her name's Chalinda Hughes. Tula? Um, Chalinda. Ah. Oh. Tula. That's what I no, heard. No, Chalinda Hughes. Um, I didn't bring her up before now because it's too long. Um, so Ivan and Chalinda still haven't left the house. The negotiator rings again. Chalinda answers and she says... Sorry, he's just looking for his keys. He always loses them in the morning. This is not the time, Chalinda, to make jokes. Chalinda, come on. Help us out here, girl. Come on, doll. Um, so finally, Malat comes out wearing both pants and a shirt. He lies down on the grass outside his house and the, cuff, the cops handcuff him. Um, the raid squad runs inside the house to begin searching. The cops tell Ivan why they're there, show him the warrant, say that they're looking for items in connection to the backpacker murders. Ivan Malat later on denied that they ever did any of this stuff, but he, what are we going to do? Believe him? No. Um, he asked him if they asked him if he had firearms inside the house and he said no. So the cops kind of were hoping to find stuff, but they expected to find just kind of like bits and pieces. Um, they found a postcard addressed to Bill. They found some foreign money and other little bits and pieces. They'd been searching for a little while and they were worried that they weren't going to find like the golden ticket that they were looking for. Um, when they went into the garage, they hopped up into the manhole and stuffed behind a support beam was a plastic bag full of gun parts. Not just any gun parts, but parts from a Ruger 1022. 
Ballistics expert Gerald Dutton presumably cried with joy, having spent the entire investigation looking at 22 bullets fired out of He's Ruger like, 1022. Jesus, I'm He's validated. like, oh my God. He'd spent literally the entire investigation looking at these bullets, like under microscopes with magnifying glasses, stuff like that. Ugh. So they find the 1022. Um, so they bring the gun parts to Ivan Milat and are like, hey, Ivan, is this your gun? And he's like, nah, never seen that in my life. And the cops are like, oh, so why is it stashed inside the roof of your garage? And Ivan Milat's like, I don't know, did you guys put it there? And they're yeah, like, yeah, sure. Ivan, that's what we did. Um, elsewhere, they found a blue sleeping bag cover with a silencer inside. They found a tent bag with a tent inside it and a headband identical to the one they found with Simone Schmidl's body. Um, there was another object in the wall cavity where they found the gun bag. They had to cut a hole in the wall to get to it, but it was a magazine to a Ruger. They found a foot-long Bowie knife, an instruction manual for a Ruger, a bayonet painted in camouflage colours, cartridge cases, gun cleaning equipment, shooting magazines, a photo of a Harley Davidson with a revolver and holster like the one that Paul Onion said Bill had, and a photo of Ivan holding a big-ass rifle. So all that from the guy saying that he had no guns in the house. Nah, no guns, mate. Sorry. No guns, mate. Sorry. Don't like him. Um, <laughs> they found a photo of Chalinda Hughes wearing a top that they would later find out had belonged to Caroline Clark. <clears throat> they found... Oh, when they do that and they give... Oh, fuck off. They found sash cord. They found two sleeping bags, one that belonged to Simone Schmidl and one that belonged to Deborah Everest. They found other bits and pieces of the 1022 stashed in various locations about the house. They had found a water bottle that had some things scratched out on it. Later on, they would use some kind of magic technology to find out underneath the scratches was the word simi. They had a camera that belonged to Caroline Clark. They found bullets, which were Ely subsonic cartridges, which with the same manufacturer number as some of the bullets that were found at the site where Gabor and Anya were found. They found bullets to a Colt 45 revolver, which Paul Onions reckoned was the gun that Bill used to threaten him. And they found a bunch of other stuff too. Uh, plenty of stuff that they were like, okay, this is like a sock or whatever, but would later be connected to the crimes. So at Richard Millat's property, the police found a bunch of camping gear that belonged to Caroline Clark and Joanne Walters. Um, at Wally's, they struck fucking gold when they uncovered the guns that Ivan had stashed there a while earlier. They found 24 weapons, including two Ruger 22s, a crossbow, a silencer, knives, machetes, and so much more. They found a package of Winchester Winner 22 bullets, 12 boxes of Ely subsonic cartridges that matched the location Gabor and Anya were found and also matched the one at Ivan's place. They found a small blue knapsack which belonged to Simone Schmidl. And in the garage at Ivan's mum's place, they found a blue shirt that belonged to Paul Onions. Um, he is so fucked. Malat was arrested and charged with the assault on Paul Onions, but every man and his dog knew that he was being done for the backpacker murders. Like, they were like... They just knew that you don't do simultaneous searches of everybody's property for just, you know, One. kidnapping and assault. You know what I mean? So Paul Gordon was questioned by a reporter from the Sun-Herald and unfortunately the reporter kind of made it seem like that Paul Gordon was the one to single-handedly solve the case. Um, and then he released an article basically being like, so the guy that they arrested, he's probably the backpacker murderer. Um, and this was problematic for Clive Small as a leader of the task force. Firstly, it linked um, Ivan Milat to the 1971 rape case for which he was acquitted. Secondly, it could be used as evidence, like at trial, saying that he's not going to be able to get a fair trial because everybody already everybody. thinks that he's the backpacker murderer. Yeah. Um, and thirdly, the use of the phrase lone investigator in reference to Paul Gordon pissed Small off. 
So he uh, took Gordon off the task force. It also kind of forced Small's hand when it came to charging Ivan with the murders because he wanted to wait and like go through everything with a fine tooth comb. But once that article came out, everybody knew that he was connected to the murders. He was like, well, we have to charge him. We can't. We can't sit on this. You know what I mean? It's not going to be quiet. Otherwise, people are going to be like, so why haven't you charged him with the backpacker murders yet? You know what I mean? Yeah. So he's charged with the backpacker murders on May 31st, 1944. What? He's charged with the backpacker murders on May 31st, 1944. 1944? 1994. I was like, you're the crazy one. Yeah, they went back in time at the time that he was born. (laughs) In 1944, and we're like, you know what? We're just going to nip this in the bud. <laughs> anyway, 1994, my apologies. I'm the idiot. Um, so skipping over, he's in prison. He doesn't get parole or whatever. Um, so the trial, two years later, it's 1996. We're three. We're three. Happy 30th birthday, birthday to you to and I. <laughs> um, so we have Mark Tedeschi QC for the Crown and Andrew Bow and Terry Martin for the Defence. Paul Onions is the star witness and basically the person to tie the whole case together. Um, they do the movie thing where they're like, is the man who attacked you in this room? And Paul Onions is like, it's that man. Let the record show he's identified. Ivan Milat. I don't know if that's how it happened. With the um, Merv. Someone. With the Merv Hughes mustache. Merv Hughes. Um, each of the parents of the murder backpackers gave evidence about their lost children, their last days, what happened when they hadn't made contact for a while, when they found out that they were killed. Um, there are hundreds of exhibits, witnesses called experts, asked about their opinion about things, questions, legal debates, judges banging gavels saying order in the court, etc., etc. Um, So the defense's strategy is a little bit hard to nail down. They kind of go softball on Paul Onions. They don't really be like, you liar, nothing ever happened to you. You're making the whole thing up. They just kind of go, okay, thank you for your statement, whatever. Um, but their their strategy comes into focus about partway through the trial. So Paul Onions had given the description of his attacker as being six foot tall and in his 30s with a Merv Hughes mustache. Ivan Milat was five foot eight and 45, and he claimed that he didn't have a mustache at the time, but later they found a photo from a couple of weeks earlier where he did have a mustache. So the defence tries to suggest that it was either Walter or Richard Milat. That's right. They were implicating the brother. They were implicating the brothers. They were implicating the brothers. Um, and they were saying like a bunch of property was found at their place too, right? Like he had the backpack. He had all the guns. Like Reasonable doubt. Reasonable doubt. Literally. Um, so that's their kind of case. The prosecution's case is, see this guy? All the stuff was there. Also had the gun. Thank you and good night. Um, Ivan Milat is on the stand for three days and... Tedeschi really rips him one. You can actually read an analysis of the entire three days of cross-examination in a book entitled R versus Malat, a case study in cross-examination by Dan Howard. Um, Dan Howard was the junior counsel of the trial. I didn't read the book because it costs $139. But if, uh, if you want to sponsor us. If you want to just send it to me, I would accept it. Yeah. I'd really like to read it. You can send me a Kindle version. That's fine if you find one. Um so Tadeshi is like to Malat, hey, it's a pretty insane coincidence that all this property from all these dead backpackers who died over the course of a couple of years winds up at your house mixed in with your stuff with your fingerprints all over it. Isn't it, Ivan Malat? And Ivan's like, yeah, mate, can't explain that. He's literally like, yeah, this stuff all came from the backpackers, but I don't know how it got into my house. I don't know how Caroline's top blind? got on my girlfriend. I don't know how 
Caroline Clark's camera had an undeveloped roll of film of stuff around Ivan Milat's place in it. He was like, yeah, no, nah, don't, don't know where it came from. So there's a moment in the cross-examination where Tedeschi is asking Ivan about uh, medical gloves that were found in the central console of his car. Tedeschi asks, did you wear it, the glove, by any chance in the crimes at the Blanglo State Forest in order to prevent fingerprints being left? Ivan replied, I wore no, I'd never seen the gloves before. Tedeschi's like, were you just about to say that you never wore gloves in the forest? And Ivan's like, oh, no, nah, I was going to say I never wore gloves in the car. But he literally was about to say, I didn't wear gloves when I murdered those people. Um, very big shame that he didn't, that he managed to catch himself there. Um, so the trial concluded after 15 weeks. Tedeschi in his closing statements was basically like, hey, jury, we aren't saying that Richard and Wally aren't involved in the crime. We're just saying you should convict the guy that had all the property at his house and the gun. And the defense was like, it was a stitch up. Wally and Richard did it. Reasonable doubt. Um, shaky hands. Shaky hands. I'm getting, I'm getting gestury. Um, the jury deliberated for a few days and reached a verdict on July 27th, 1996. Guilty. Thank you, Jesus. Yay. Ivan Milat was sentenced to prison for the term of his natural life. Thank God. Thank God. Goodbye. Forever. Goodbye, Felicia. Bye, Felicia. So there is still a lot of debate to this day about whether or not Ivan acted alone. So there's, I don't think he did. There's plenty of evidence to suggest that there was two perpetrators, the fact that the hitchhikers were killed differently, um, the different types of bullets found at the scene, uh, Dr. Milton, Dr. Milton, the psychologist, the anthropologist, Dr. Basham, the judge, the prosecution, and the defense all agreed that, that there was evidence to suggest that two people committed the crimes. Whether or not Richard or Wally or anybody else was involved, we probably will never know. I think it's important to note for the two cases that we have witnesses for, Paul Onions and Margaret and Greta, the 1971 victims, Ivan Milat acted alone. So I think it's very possible that he did it all alone. I think it's possible that he did some of it alone because it was like his thing, but like brought his brother maybe in later on, was like, hey, I've got this new hobby Mm. that I think you'd enjoy. It's murder. Come with me one time. I, you think that, there was the two? only thing, the only case I Paul Onions definitely, some of the others probably acted alone. It's the one where they were turning that poor girl's body. You think you couldn't do that alone? Or you think it's more likely that there was two people doing it? I feel like it was more likely that there was two people. One person standing one place, one person standing the other, both shooting? Yeah. Let's hope not. <sighs> wow. Wow. Um, I also think that uh, just because they were stabbed and shot doesn't necessarily no, mean it was no, too no, different. That, no, no. Because Ivan liked guns and knives. I just think, like, it just seems difficult to get away with killing those people on your own. I don't know. Sorry, that was a stupid thing to say. But No, you're right. It like, is. Even if it was, like, two girls or one guy and one girl or, you know. And Gabor especially was a unit. Like, he was really tall and quite yeah. big. Like, it just seems one person taking on both of those people. And, like, he wasn't, like... He wasn't particularly physically imposing No, himself. no, no. But he was crazy. Yeah. Oh, so I think a crazy guy box, with a gun to your girlfriend's boxes. head, you're going to do whatever he says. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it just, you know, logically, logically you in go, my head... One person can't be capable of this. Yeah, but he probably was. Probably. 
Wow. Wow. I want to talk about – I have three little bullet points, little bows to tie up Go. before we finish. Um, firstly, in 1995, um, detectives working on the backpack and murders found a body that was – I said the backpack murders. The backpacker murders. All those people murdering backpacks. <laughs> those poor backpacks. Leave them bitches. alone. Um, they found a file about a body that was found in the Janolan State Forest that had a few similarities to the bodies in the Belangolo State Forest. So um, Peter Letcher was an 18-year-old saw- sawmill worker who had planned to catch a train from Liverpool to his home in Bathurst after he proposed to and was rejected by his 15-year-old girlfriend. He instead ended up hitchhiking. Letcher was shot five times to the back of the head with a piece of cloth wrapped around his head like a blindfold, just like Caroline Clark. The body was found face down in a hole covered in sticks and leaf litter. Letcher disappeared on a Friday and Ivan Milat started work at the Janolan Caves Road on the Monday. So the Janolan State Forest was 80 kilometres away from Belangolo, but it seems a little too similar for it to not and be, he never got mine. charged with it. Never got charged with it. No, there was no actual evidence. I think the the bullets that they recovered, they could never do anything with, or maybe they didn't recover any bullets. I can't remember. Um, so police have always suspected that Ivan was responsible for more than the seven murders that he was convicted for. Mm. So I don't know if they're looking into. I would doubt that they're looking into any other missing persons disappearances from around the same time. I think it's all pretty case closed now, but I think it's pretty I mean, the the cloth wrapped around the head, that's that's too that's too malat. That's signature. That's Yeah. Secondly, I wanted to talk about Wolf Creek. We mentioned Wolf Creek. John Jarrett. John Jarrett. Ugh. John Jarrett, everybody likes his performance in that movie, but I didn't think it was that good. I can I hand to God never seen it and I don't know if I ever will. Oh, well, this is not going to be very relatable for you, but I wanted to talk about one moment in Wolf Creek. So I watched Wolf Creek before I did any of the research because I was like, I know a bit about the backpacker murders, obviously, because everybody does in Australia. Um, But I mostly know about Wolf Creek. So I watched Wolf Creek and there is a scene in Wolf Creek where John Jarrett, as whatever the murderer's name is, um, says to the people that he's murdering, I'm going to do this thing to you called head on a stick, which means like he's like, I'm if you sever the spinal cord, it leaves somebody as just like a head on the stick because their body can't move. I was like, okay, we get it. He's a freaky serial killer. He's a weirdo. Ivan Milat actually said that to people. He actually told people about how you make like a head on a stick. One time when he was talking to friends or whatever, he, it, uh, it was real. And if you remember, quite a few of the bodies severed were found spines. with severed spinal cords likely to have been paralyzed. So the most unrealistic and tacky part of Wolf Creek was actually based on something that really happened. Fuck off. Yes, very messed up. I do highly recommend the movie Wolf Creek. It was really good. It freaked me out. I had trouble sleeping. And I was also like, fuck me, I am never driving around the outback. (laughs) Just don't do it, folks. Don't do it. Um, My third and final bullet point Jess is going like, I'm right because I hate the outdoors. The outdoors are fine. Just don't be stupid. If your car breaks down in a remote location, don't accept rides from John Jarrett. (laughs) He's in a lot of trouble at the moment. Is he really? Yep. What did he do? Uh, He's been charged with a, I think he's been rape (gasps) of a teen in 1977. Not John Jarrett. Noni Hazel, her sex husband. 
I love Noni Hazelhurst. I love Noni Hazelhurst. Do you know how fucking close I was to meeting Noni Hazelhurst? When she was at um, the Maya Centre that one day? Was it the Maya Centre? No. Where was it? She, she was in Brisbane at one point. <laughs> no, because old mate, well, never mind. Anyway, moving on. Anyway, moving on. My third and final bullet point. Um, Ivan Malat's nephew, Matthew Malat, murdered his friend David Orcelloni at the Blanglo State Forest in 2012. Fuck off. Yes. You're joking. No. What? Yes. So he, his friend Cohen Klein and another friend, Chase Day, who didn't know what was going on, Cohen Klein did, Chase, no, um, lured him basically to the forest and murdered Orcelloni with a double-edged axe in the same area where Ivan tortured the backpackers. Cohen Klein filmed the entire thing on his mobile phone. Afterwards, Matthew Malat gloated about the murder, saying, you know me, you know my family, you know the last name Malat. I'm just doing what my family does. Do they have... Oh, fucking hell. Bunch of noodles. (laughs) That's your hot take, folks. The Malats, a bunch of noodles. So... I'm out. I'm out. He was sentenced to 43 years in prison with a non-parole period of 30 years. No word on how Ivan felt about all that. And that's it. That's the backpacker murders. There's so much stuff. Oh, hold on. I should have done this at the start of the episode. The book, Sins of the Brother by Mark Whitaker and Les Kennedy. Fantastic book. So good. Such a good read. Very Australian. I think if you're not from Australia, you would find some things confusing. It turns a phrase and various things very classic Aussie bloke style of writing. I thought it was so good. There's so much information I didn't include. If anybody comments and says, like, why didn't you talk about the affair that he had with his brother's wife? I'm going to be like, do you want to know how long our episodes are? Do, have you seen the timestamp? I can't fit in everything. But it's very interesting. If you want to learn more, read it. Um, read the other book about the cross-examination. looks really good. You can watch a TV show called Chasing Malat. I think it's on 7 Play or whatever the Channel 7's catch-up service is. Yes. Um, Yeah. Fucking fantastic work, doll. That was so good. I'm, my voice is tired. <laughs> Mate, that was unreal. We were much brighter in the second episode than we were in the oh, first. That was so good. Okay. Thank you for listening. Yay, Ellen. She fucking nailed it. We'll be back in two weeks with... Anita Cobby. Anita Cobby, a case that we have talked about since we started doing this show. I am reading, currently reading the book. It is, uh, what is it? Hold on. Uh, feeling for time, feeling for time, because Jess has moved away from the microphone. I'm just feeling in. Um, Anita Cobby, The Crime That Shocked the Nation by Alan J. Whitaker. Really enjoying it so far. Hey, another Whitaker. Mark Whitaker wrote this book. Maybe they're brothers. Maybe they're Maybe serial like the killer brothers. <laughs> um, so we'll be back in two weeks for Anita Cobby. Um, please uh, get in touch on Facebook, Murder in the Land of Oz. Send us, you know, any info you know about the Malats. Obviously, it's a pretty fucked up time. Um, And please feel free to let us know. So we have a few more cases. Oh, what? We've got like five more in New South Wales. And then I guess we're heading down to Victoria. Victoria. So get in quick if you've got some Victorian cases that you want us to talk about because then we can, you know, rifle through and And talk about them. Yeah. 
Um, so we are on Facebook, Murder in the Land of Oz. We are at Instagram at Midloo Podcast. You can send us an email at murderinthelandofoz at gmail.com. Get in touch. We would like to hear from you and know that we are doing a good job. Or Remember, if you think we're doing a real bad job, yeah, you can also tell us either that. that. I can't tell you what to do. We can we can learn and we can um, grow. Thank you, Ellen, for an amazing start to the New South, New South Wales, Wales season Yay, episode. Holy shit, that was so fucking good. Um, please rate and review and subscribe. It really helps us out, guys. Um, and it's really cool that so many of you are listening. It's fun. It is fun. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. G'day. No. No. No.